0: and for ourselves, O oh Lord, as we now come to Your Word. We ask once again that You would feed us our daily bread. We ask that You would feed and nourish us with Your Word. We ask that You would strengthen us, that You would, uh, that you would teach us, O oh Lord, with Your Word. We know that Your Word is perfect. It is inerrant. It's infallible. Uh, it's unthwartable. And we know that Your Word never returns void to You. And so we ask, O Lord, that Your Word would do Your work in us in accordance with the Spirit working within us to uh, give us ears to understand, give us eyes to see the truths in this passage, and give us a heart that desires to walk in accordance with Your will for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, there are plenty of Bibles available, so if you need one, please feel free to take one. If you don't have one at home, please feel free to take one of the Bibles home with you. Uh, we'd love for you to have that as Uh, Something that you own if you don't already own one. But today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll be looking specifically at verses 24 to 42 as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Um, I want to start this sermon off, actually, uh, by stating something that should be really obvious, and it's one of those things that should be obvious, but it's actually controversial. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, I suppose. But I want to start this sermon off by saying that God alone is worthy of your unconditional, unqualified allegiance, love, and trust. If we don't agree on that much, it doesn't matter really what else we might agree on. And so that much needs to be established, that God alone is worthy of your unconditional and unqualified allegiance, love, and trust. There are people who struggle with that concept. In fact, there are even Christians who struggle with this concept. Some people just outright reject it. That's what most people do. But that doesn't change the fact that God alone is worthy of your unconditional and unqualified allegiance, love, and trust. Every one of us has sort of a, a preformed uh, expectation of what, uh, what God should be what God should do, uh, what He should, shouldn't do, what He should affirm, what He shouldn't affirm, and so on and so forth. And I was reminded of that this past week as I watched a video of this woman just losing her mind with this street preacher when he told her that believing in Jesus won't guarantee her, uh, or any person, a life that's free of suffering. And she screamed back at this street preacher, uh, saying, well, what then is the point of your religion? See, this woman had a set of expectations about God, expectations that if we do this, then he should do that. In other words, she's talking about very conditional allegiance, love, and trust, very qualified Uh, allegiance, love, and trust. She's thinking that if we believe, well then God owes us a trouble-free life, and if he doesn't give us that, then he's not worthy of our greatest allegiance, love, and trust. Uh, John the Baptist had expectations about Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, he's no different from anybody else and, and because Jesus didn't meet those expectations he didn't live up to the expectations that John the Baptist had. John the Baptist ends up sending some of his disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus truly is the Messiah of Israel, the anointed One, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's remember that in the Gospel of John that's what he said in the first chapter. he knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus Jesus had come to do and yet aside from that he had all these false expectations of Jesus. And so his disciples go to Jesus to ask him if he is truly the chosen one, truly the anointed one, and of course Jesus responded in the affirmative. Uh, he was the one that Israel was waiting for. He was the Messiah. The problem was that John the Baptist While he had some some right ideas about Jesus and about God, he also had some wrong ideas and some false expectations when it came to Jesus. Nevertheless, even though Jesus didn't live up to John the Baptist's expectations, Jesus, who was both true God and true man, was worthy of Of John the Baptist's unconditional unqualified allegiance love and trust it's so easy to have a low view of Jesus to set expectations for him as if he came not to provide for our greatest need but as if he came to just give us what we want Uh, but a person with that view of Jesus a person with a view of Jesus that's that low cannot follow him Now, there are at least two things that Jesus said in the course of his ministry uh, that made this abundantly clear. The first thing that I would point to is the time that Jesus had a great multitude of people following him. You would call that a success, right? But then he turns to them and he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Next thing you know, there aren't very many people following Jesus at all. The second thing that Jesus said, which just obliterates the notion that a person with a low view of Jesus can follow him, is found in Luke's gospel, where Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, clearly, Jesus does not actually want us to literally hate anyone. And that's proven by the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, two times he instructs us to love our enemies. So what did Jesus mean when he said that you must hate your family and yourself if you're going to follow him? Well, Jesus often spoke in what we call hyperbole, well, like a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's a means of creating contrast and comparison. And in this instance, he was essentially saying that our love for him, our allegiance to him, our loyalty to him should be so great that our love and our loyalty to our families, that's the next, uh, that we're we're most likely, in the flesh, that's what we're most likely to feel love and loyalty toward, that our our greatest uh, uh, love, our greatest loyalty to our families and to ourselves would look like hatred in comparison to how much we love Jesus and how loyal we are to him. So these words were really spoken to act in the same way that a, a bucket of cold ice water to the face works, to wake us up to the reality that Jesus alone is worthy of being our greatest treasure, our greatest joy, and our greatest love, and that He alone is worthy of our greatest allegiance, love, and trust. Now, I don't know if anybody in the Old Testament illustrates this principle of extreme loyalty to God, as well as Jonathan does. Jonathan being David's closest friend. We've seen that he loved and he established a covenant with David in our study of 1 Samuel. And we've seen that he knew that David was to take the throne that Jonathan rightfully would have been expected to sit on next as heir to the throne. And yet Jonathan wasn't even... Slightly, not even remotely bothered by the fact that he wasn't going to be the next one on the throne, but that David was. What he was bothered by was the fact that his father, King Saul, would desire to murder David. Uh, Chapter 20 started with David trying to convince Jonathan uh, of Jonathan's father, King Saul's desire to kill David. And Jonathan thought, how could that be? And so they decided to, uh, they came up with this test. Uh, whereby they would determine. They, they go out to a field, uh, they, they devise this plan uh, to ascertain whether or not David's life really was in danger. The plan was that David would be absent from the feast of the new moon at, uh, at Saul's house. Saul was, was hosting it, uh, and as Saul's son-in-law, of course, David would have been expected to be there. Right, So the plan was that if Saul asked about David's whereabouts, Jonathan would tell him that David had to go to Bethlehem to do a sacrifice with his family. And if Saul was unbothered, if he just didn't care, if he was like, oh, okay, whatever, uh, then that would be a sign uh, that, he, that David could come back. Uh, but if Saul became angry, of course, Jonathan would know that it was his father's intention to To murder David, and David would have to flee for his life. So Jonathan was really kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, you might say, between uh, his father, who who was also his king, on one hand, and his brother in the faith, David, on the other hand. Uh, And this will bring us to a passage, uh, the passage that we'll be looking at today. Uh, The point of this passage is that if God is our and has our Uh, highest allegiance, love, and trust, we can suffer even incredible hardships with joy and peace knowing that God's good and righteous plans and purposes for us cannot be thwarted. How many of you know that if you are in Christ, God's plans and purposes for you are only for your good? Do you know that? Everybody on, on page with me? On the right page with me? Okay, we can agree on that much. His, his covenant promises are always faithful. Or they're always certain. They will be done. So I believe that this explains how Jonathan navigated uh, this, this difficult predicament with such grace. Because as we're going to see, hard times are coming his way. Uh, The rock and the hard place that he finds himself stuck between, they're going to start giving him a little bit of a squeeze in this passage. So let's start by looking at verses 24 to 29 of 1 Samuel chapter 20. It says, So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table." So they set this plan in motion. It was established. And David uh, does his part. He moves into position out in this field where he's hiding, missing the feast of the new moon, uh, hiding out in this field instead, waiting for Jonathan to come and to let him know what, uh, what the decision is, what the verdict is. Can he return to normal life, or does he need to flee for his life? Uh, Jonathan, uh, on the other hand, takes his position at the feast he 's present at the feast, as are Abner, uh, and as would be you know a fairly large company of people since he 's the king uh, and of course, King Saul would be there as well. And we're told that on the first day of the feast, King Saul apparently noticed that David was absent. He noticed that David's seat was empty, uh, but he didn't say anything about it. He just sort of dismissed it and let it go, reasoning in his own mind that, well, David must be unclean, and that's why he hasn't come. Uh, There was no question, of course, that um, it wasn't difficult to say it nicely, that uh, it wasn't difficult to be rendered unclean. There are numerous things that could render a person unclean. And of course, one place that you can find a list of things that render a person unclean would be like Leviticus chapters 11 to 15. You can see tons of things there that would render a man or woman unclean, but only for a brief time. Uh, What's maybe a little bit surprising here? if not just incredulous, uh, is the fact that Saul doesn't think to himself, he's not, he's not really reasoning to himself, because if he was being really reasonable, he might have thought something like, well, you know, maybe David excused himself from this dinner because he knows the way that I've been chasing him around trying to murder him, uh, you know, and so maybe he's decided to just skip town. Uh, that's not what he thinks. He doesn't think David would do that, apparently. Uh, Saul was just such a textbook classical narcissist. Uh, He's so delusional, he apparently thought that David wouldn't even dare to miss an opportunity like this to dine at the king's table. Uh, He apparently held the presumption uh, that David's highest allegiance, love, and trust was toward himself, was toward King Saul, since Saul was the king. Uh, that David would have been uh, more interested in being loyal to the king than he was in even preserving his own life. These are the, the ways that a madman thinks. Of course, only God is worthy of such loyalty, but Saul, being the madman that he was, being the narcissist that he was, he apparently didn't see all that many differences between himself and God. Uh, And so thus, day one of the feast comes and goes without much of a commotion. Uh, King Saul thinks that David just must have been unclean, but that would uh, mean that he should be there the next day, right? So day two comes, and the same people are present at the table of the feast, and the same person, David, is absent from the feast, Uh, There were many offenses in the law that would have rendered a person unclean only for a day, just just until evening of a day, which would have explained why he missed one day, Uh, but now suddenly it means that uncleanness, because he's not there the second day, he's thinking that uncleanness is far, far less likely to be the reason that David was missing from the table. And so this time, King Saul doesn't just reason to himself. He doesn't just sit there and speculate to himself. He knows that Jonathan was very fond of David. And so King Saul presses him, presses Jonathan, about David's whereabouts, asking him, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And once again, King Saul is expecting the kind of loyalty from David that really only God is worthy of. But the disdain that King Saul felt for David seems to even maybe be found in how he refers to David, not as David per se, but as the son of Jesse. See, to to be called David, that's That's recognizing that he has value, that he's a human being, he's a person. He could have said that it was his son-in-law, which is an even higher position, but no, he keeps calling him the son of Jesse. And Jonathan is... Uh, he's ready to give his dad the answer that they had, that he and David had prepared. Uh, he doesn't want to give even the smallest hint that David would have left without getting permission from those over him. Such a thing would have uh, caused great offense. Uh, so Jonathan gives him the answer that David had instructed him to give. Only he adds to it a little bit. Uh, notice it's it's not word for word what David instructed him to say, but. It's kind of close, but he does embellish a little bit. Uh, Jonathan embellishes quite a bit, actually. Maybe uh, that's a reminder that Jonathan is lying here. He, he's not telling the truth. He's lying at David's request. And maybe we're supposed to remember that lying is a sin, and that sin will always take you far, far further than you think it's going to. Um, and I say that because the embellishments that Jonathan has added seem to have most likely inadvertently revealed just a little bit too much of what was going on. If you look at verse 29 when Jonathan reports that David said, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. There's a little thing there that gets lost in translation. And that is the fact that the word that gets translated, let me get away, literally in Hebrew means let me escape. Let me escape. It's actually the exact word that the author of 1 Samuel has used to describe David uh, in the way that he has escaped Saul's attempts on his life over the course of the previous couple chapters. But as vain and as narcissistic Uh, as prideful as we've seen King Saul to be the fact that this response results in him throwing a fit of violent rage as we're going to see here in a minute that's not going to be too surprising for us but what we are to see here what we are supposed to see here what the author I believe wants us to see is that Jonathan has chosen which side he is going to be on he was going to be on the side that God was on He knew that the Spirit of God was upon David just as it had once been on his own father, on Saul. And he knew that David was God's anointed for this time. And so to betray David would have been for Jonathan to actually betray God. God still would have delivered David unquestionably, even without Jonathan. But Jonathan has chosen his side. He's picked whose side he's on. And likewise, friends, there's a very important principle underlying all of this, and that is that we must learn to live our lives and to navigate sticky or dangerous circumstances in light of which side you are on. In fact, we could go so far as to say that every single decision that we make in life should be made in light of which side we're on. One of the greatest dangers, one of the, one of the greatest Uh, pitfalls for sin that the church has ever faced is simply the fact that there are troubles in life, there are trials in life that might actually be caused, that might actually be brought on as a direct result of living for God's glory and for God's approval rather than for man's. And so the question is, which side are you on? God's or man's? You know, there's often a cost for following Jesus. And even Jesus encouraged his disciples to count the cost, consider the cost. And yet, the question is, is Jesus worthy of that cost? He is. He's more than worthy of even the highest and greatest and ultimate cost. He's more than worthy of that. Let that fact be the primary filter in your decision-making process. Jonathan's highest allegiance, his highest and greatest love, his trust was in God, not in his father, not in his family, not in anything in this world. It was in God. For that reason, he models for us the dangers that can be caused by choosing to be on God's side. And King Saul now will demonstrate the way that the world is often going to feel about that and respond to that. Let's continue looking at verses 30-34. to It says, Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. So Saul's response was for his anger to burn within him against his own son The word, the Hebrew word that gets translated burn against, by the way, that's the same Hebrew word that you find in Genesis chapter 4 to describe Cain's feelings toward his brother Abel. Of course, Cain murdered Abel. And so what we should see here is that King Saul already has murder in his heart. He's going to try to murder his own son, Jonathan, but it starts in his heart. It starts with this rage boiling up within his, hearts, his heart. And how many of you know that what is in the heart actually comes out through the mouth? Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty four, uh, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So why does Saul say what he says here? Because it's what's in his heart. All this rage, all this anger, all this madness. And boy, doesn't Jonathan know it? Doesn't he feel it? The words that come from Saul's mouth are the most hateful words you can imagine a father ever speaking to his son. In fact, these are words that are unfit for any father to ever speak to their son. And he says these words right in front of everyone, right in front of the whole company who has been in attendance for the feast the feast of the new moon was to be a, a sacred feast. You were to, supposed to be clean if you, were to, if you were coming to it. We saw that Saul supposed that David must have been uh, unclean, must have excused himself the first night because he was unclean. But here we see that, that King Saul is actually the one who's been unclean all along because he's had murder in his heart, boiling up, burning in his heart all along. And thus we once again see the absolute worthlessness of man-made outward religiosity in King Saul's example. King Saul knows that somebody who's unclean can't come to the table, and yet he's right there, not even realizing the fact that nobody at that table was probably filthier than he was. It's just an outward, external, man-made religion that Saul follows. And notice that as he he verbally assaults Jonathan, he can't even speak David's name once again. He he still refers to him as the son of Jesse. I mean, like I said, he could have just as rightly referred to David as his own son-in-law, but pride prevents him from seeing David as belonging in such an esteemed position. But Saul suddenly realizes that Jonathan has chosen not to be on his side but instead to be on God's side rather than on Saul's side. And he is outraged about it. And if you've followed along in this study, you would think to yourself, of course he would be outraged. Of course he would be. The reason that King Saul is so outraged is because he knows that it means that Jonathan, neither Jonathan nor his kingdom will be established. Uh, See the tradition then that was the oldest son of the king would be the heir to the throne. That was the cultural norm at the time. That would be what was expected. But we should also remember what God told Saul specifically and very clearly through the prophet Samuel back in chapter 13. Back in chapter 13, Saul had worshipped God in a way that God had not instructed. And when Samuel saw that, He said to King Saul in verses 13 and 14, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your king over Israel forever. Did you catch that? He would have if if you had not done this. He says, But now your kingdom shall not endure The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, with all that in mind, whose fault is it that Jonathan and his kingdom will not be established? It's not Jonathan's fault. It's King Saul's fault. It's entirely his fault, in fact. It was a consequence of Saul's lack of faith. It was a consequence of Saul's unbelief, which resulted in his disobedience, blatant disobedience toward God. The fact is that Jonathan was actually the one, uh, who, he was actually a son of a perverse and rebellious man, not mother. He was the son of a perverse and rebellious man. The fact is that Jonathan wasn't uh, the only one who had chosen the son of Jesse. God himself had first chosen the son of Jesse, and that's why Jonathan had chosen the same way. And now King Saul is aware of it. King Saul's aware of it, and he seems to be aware of the one that David is the one that, Saul, or that Samuel was describing back in chapter 13. Jonathan being the godly man that he was he tried to reason with his father and again let's remember that uh, there's a whole company of guests who are present for this scene Uh, but reason has worked with his father before and so Jonathan appeals to the same thing that had worked before reason he says to his father in front of everyone why should he why should David be put to death what has he done now what is the right answer that to that The right answer is that David hasn't done anything that's worthy of death. David hasn't done anything that's worthy of persecution. This is all about Saul protecting his pride, his ego. It's all about Saul being a complete narcissist. Saul has hated God all along, and he expressed his hatred toward God by seeking to kill a man in whom a resemblance of God's character could be seen, that being David. So he sought to kill David because God was with David. And Saul seems to have recognized that at this point. But instead of being reasonable, instead of answering Jonathan's question, which, by the way, would have made him only look bad if he'd been truthful about Uh, his reasons for wanting to murder David, Uh, but he attempts to murder his own son on the spot, hurling his spear across the room at him. So now Saul would have a total of four holes in the walls of his house to commemorate how bad his aim with a spear was. He had missed David a total of three times, kind of at point-blank range, and now he's missed again with his own son as the intended target. Uh, of course, we know, and 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 Jonathan knew, that King Saul was actually uh, correct, that, that Jonathan's kingdom wasn't going to be established. King Saul was right about that. Jonathan knew that he was right about that, but Jonathan was perfectly comfortable with that, because... Jonathan had no interest in standing against or opposing God's plans, unlike his father, King Saul. So Saul seems to have realized by this point that David was indeed the man after God's own heart that Samuel spoke of. Saul had every reason to know for a fact that God was going to continually deliver David, because that's what's happened every single time up to this point. Saul has tried everything that he can think of to murder David, and it hasn't worked. God has delivered him every time, but that did nothing to persuade Saul to accept God's plans. He still believed, he still desired that David should die. But all of this shows us that Jonathan uh, all, this, all of this shows Jonathan that, that David was completely correct about Saul's intentions. When he came to Jonathan and said, your father wants to kill me, why does he want to kill me? And Jonathan had a tough time believing that. He doesn't anymore. He knows that it's true. Their, their plan had revealed the truth, whether they wanted to know that truth or not. And needless to say, we can't exactly blame Jonathan for being angry. Uh, after the spear gets chucked at him and, and getting up and leaving the table of the feast. But he's grieved. He's grieved at the wickedness of his father. He's so grieved that he doesn't even eat any food on the second day of the feast. He's grieved at the cost of being on God's side. The cost was peace in the family. But it doesn't do a thing to convince him to change the side that he has chosen. He's chosen his side. And regardless of what the consequences are, if that's God's side, that's the side that Jonathan's going to stick with and let the chips fall where they may. And likewise, friends, you need to know that there will be a cost for following Christ and for doing things for God's approval rather than for man's approval. But there is a far greater cost, we must be warned, for rejecting God's appointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and for seeking man's approval instead of God's. Keep that fact also as a filter in your decision-making process, because it's one thing that should matter to every one of us. God alone is worthy of our highest, our unconditional, our unqualified allegiance, love, and trust. He is our sure portion in life and death. And if you believe that, and if you apply that principle to your life, if you live that, there will eventually be some sort of consequences. It may result in a severed relationship with a friend or a family member. For some, it might mean losing your job. Maybe it just means people hurling insults at you. For many around the world, the cost ultimately may be their very lives. But no cost and no consequence is worth having less allegiance, love, or trust toward God. Regardless of what the consequences may be, God alone is worthy. So count the cost. Count the cost. Because in the end, you will will always find, every single time, you will always find that Christ is worthy of that cost. The second part of David and Jonathan's plan was that Jonathan would go out to the field where David has been hiding uh, and he would have a young boy go to retrieve his arrows. They'd agreed that if Jonathan said to the young boy, behold, the arrows on, uh, are on this side of you, get them, then David was safe. But if Jonathan had said, behold, the arrows are beyond you to the boy, then that would mean that the Lord was sending David away. And so the remainder of this chapter shows the execution of this second part of the plan. Uh, Let's continue in verses 35 to 42. It says, Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. He said to his lad, Run, find the arrows which I'm about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. Then the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot. Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. What a good and faithful friend Jonathan was to David. Jonathan had everything to lose here. And if he had anything to gain, it would have been small, at least in a tangible sense, by going out and informing David of the outcome of uh, this test that they had applied to King Saul. Uh, If the boy, if the lad accompanying him, had seen David or been made aware of David's presence... Uh, He very likely would have reported his presence to King Saul or to somebody. It would have gotten around. Word would have gotten around. Uh, And it could have resulted in uh, Jonathan paying the ultimate price, ultimately. But even in his state of, of deep, penetrating grief, he was nevertheless faithful to his friend David. Of course, the test had revealed that the Lord was sending David away. And thus Jonathan shouted to the young lad retrieving his arrows, Is not the arrow beyond you? So the youth retrieved his arrows and hurried back to Jonathan's side. And as he arrived with the arrows, Jonathan uh, took off his his bow, took off his weapons, and gave them to the boy and instructs the boy to take the weapons into the city. This way the boy... uh, will be out of the picture. The coast will be clear, uh, giving Jonathan an opportunity to bid farewell to his covenant friend, David. Uh, The farewell scene that ensues, that that takes place between David and Jonathan, it's one of the most moving goodbye scenes ever recorded or written. Uh, We should see that as as David uh, humbly bows Three times before Jonathan, he's still acting in the position of being Jonathan's subordinate. He's still recognizing that Jonathan is in a position higher than he was in currently, even though David had been anointed as the next king of Israel. But David uh, didn't behave, even though he had this anointing and this calling on his life, even though he was chosen by God to be over God's people. Uh, He didn't behave as though the throne was rightfully his until it was time. He remained humble. God's timing was going to be David's timing too. Now in the Western world, men typically don't kiss each other. Uh, but if you travel to other places around the world, specifically to the Middle East or to the Far East, you'll still see that this tradition of kissing exists today, not to the lips, but to the cheek. Uh, this isn't, therefore, a, a kiss that would indicate any degree of sexual perversity, contrary to many liberal scholars today, uh, any more than Judas's kiss on the cheek of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was sexually perverse when Jesus was arrested. Of course, it wasn't and neither is this a kiss on the cheek from one man to another was and still is an accepted expression of uh, of friendship uh, but it was also an expression of subordination and or veneration Uh, That's what's expressed, for example, back when Saul was uh, appointed as king and Samuel kissed him back in chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, In 2 Samuel, we're going to see David use the kiss on the cheek as a political expression uh, several times. Uh, And if we know our Bibles, we know that there's one other place specifically where a kiss represents uh, subordination, uh, submission, or veneration. That is in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we read of how the kings of the earth are plotting against God, seeking to free themselves from God's rightful rule and reign and authority. And God's response to them, it, well, it's, it's twofold. Uh, first, he laughs at them because a wet blade of grass stands a better chance of extinguishing the sun than all the kings of the earth combined have of thwarting God's plans. But the second thing he does as he warns the kings of the earth and instructs them to kiss the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. This is a kiss of submission. It's recognizing the authority that he has. It's an act of subordination. It's the way that the kings of the earth who hated God and who are raging and plotting against God to express the end of their rebellion toward God and the beginning of their turning around, repenting and yielding toward God instead. But what's interesting is that David is seen as such a strong foreshadowing of Jesus here. David is... God's anointed king of Israel, and yet the acting king of Israel, King Saul, has been raging and plotting against God and his anointed, in this case, David. But the hatred that Saul had for David would be the same hatred that the world would have toward Jesus. And make no mistake about it, when the church is persecuted, as it often is, we live in a place where this has kind of been Uh, an exception to the rule that life for christians would be very trying we've become very comfortable in this country but if you go to other places around the world if you look back through uh, textbooks of, of history and see how the church has always been treated it's never been a life of comfort so when the church is persecuted we need to understand this much we need to understand that it's really christ himself who's being persecuted when Saul, a.k.a. Paul, so different Saul, right, New Testament, when he was persecuting the church, doing everything that he could to have Christians put to death, uh, what did Jesus say to him when he appeared to, to Saul, a.k.a. Paul, on the road to Damascus? He could have said, Saul, why are, you, why are you trying to kill my people? Why are you persecuting my church? He could have said those things, but instead what he says to Saul, a.k.a. Paul, in Acts nine four is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Ultimately, it was Jesus that he was persecuting. Saul, a.k.a. Paul, had been in the company of those those earthly and worldly kings who were raging and plotting against God. But in that moment, Saul ceased and instead submitted himself unto God, kissing the Son as anyone who is wise would do. See, the kissing that David and Jonathan experienced here, that they exchange here, it, it isn't sexually perverse in any way. Rather, it was a picture of David's submission to his current superior, and it was Jonathan's submission to his future superior. Jonathan knew that David would be king because he knew that that was God's plan. He knew that God was showing favor after favor to, to David, delivering him from one battle From one circumstance after another. So these men, Jonathan and David, they had a covenant bond between them. And what we see here is that the covenant provides both of them with a sense of safety and peace in a time that would otherwise have been incredibly dangerous uh, and uncertain for both of them. Were it not for the certainty of the promises made in the covenant, Jonathan bidding farewell by saying, go in safety, would actually seem pretty comical. What we would say is, run for your life. But he says, go in safety. And it's not humorous. It's not comical. Rather than being humorous, Jonathan is being dead serious. Because he knows that David will be safe because he knows that God will ensure his safety. See, the the peace and the safety that David would flee with is the same peace and safety that the Scriptures assure us that we have. You you think of the time that Jesus was in the boat out in the the Sea of Galilee and this terrible storm comes and the disciples are just losing their minds. All these seasoned fishermen, they're trying to steady the boat, uh, but they finally become convinced that they're going to die and they can't believe. They're They're just in awe. They're just kind of upset about the fact that Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat and so we read in Mark chapter 4 verses uh, verse 38 Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing now you can't sleep unless you're you've got a sense of security and peace if you don't feel like you're safe try going to sleep you you, you can't. That's why kids wake you up in the middle of the night, mom and dad, right? Because they don't feel safe, because they don't have a sense of peace. And so here's Jesus with this peace, with with such a great sense of safety, even in the middle of a violent storm, that he would be sleeping. And you might say to that, "Well, well, of course he did. He's God. Well, yes, But what is it about him being God that gave Jesus enough peace and a strong enough sense of safety in this storm that he could just sleep right through it? Was it not the fact that he knew that he was in sovereign control of this storm all along? See, the disciples weren't in control, but the disciples being in control wasn't supposed to be the basis of their sense of peace and safety. So they could have had a sense of peace and safety despite the storm, right? Absolutely, by recognizing who was sovereign over the storm, by trusting that Jesus was greater than some storm, however strong it might have been. Now maybe you know what it's like to suffer or to grieve. And to feel like God is just far away and not doing anything about it. Maybe you know what it's like to feel like saying to God, hey, God, don't you care that I'm dying down here? Don't you care that I'm suffering? Don't you care that I'm grieving? Don't you care about my heartache? And the answer is, of course, He cares. Of course, He cares. He cares for the sparrows. How could we ever think that He doesn't care for us? The cross proves that He cares more about us than we would ever dare to possibly imagine. Yes, friends, He does care about you. He cares about you when you are in violent storms. He cares about you when you are in trials that would shake you down to your bones. So maybe the better question would be to ask why we might ever think, or at least be tempted to think, that God doesn't care about us. And one possible answer, maybe one of the most common reasons that Christians lack a sense of peace and safety in life and death, would be because we expect something of God that He hasn't promised. One thing He has not promised is that life will be filled with peaceful circumstances, that there will never be afflictions, that there will never be trials in our lives. He's never promised that. Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says, quote, the Christian does not have peace because things are peaceful. He has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to him. And he adds this. He says, quote, if you doubt that, you have not been listening at the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. It is the covenant bond of that unforsaking friend that speaks peace in our disappointments, dangers, and even disasters. End quote. Just as Jesus promised all who believe in Him, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's from John fifteen eighteen. David could have just as easily said to Jonathan, if King Saul hates you, you know that he's hated me before he hated you. Jonathan's loyalty to David was really, in the ultimate sense, loyalty and allegiance toward God. It was God to whom Jonathan gave his highest, unconditional allegiance, love, and trust. Jonathan is probably the Bible's best illustration of the principle that Jesus taught on this issue when he said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who illustrates that better than Jonathan? Nobody. By God's grace, friends, may we be a people who are known for giving god our highest greatest unconditional allegiance love and trust knowing that, that may that may prove to be costly that may invite terrible storms of affliction into our lives at times but here's the key to finding peace at that god is sovereign God's the one who has ordained everything that comes to pass, including the valleys that He leads us through. And we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we know, we believe, we know that He lives, we know that He reigns, we know that He has promised that everything that we encounter in life, the trials, the storms, the heartache, the pain, the losses, will all be ordained by God for one thing. And that is for our ultimate good, that we may become more like Jesus. There is therefore no hardship or affliction or trial or pain that you will encounter in this life that you won't be able to one day look back on and thank God for one day. If you can see your life through that paradigm, and I pray that you would, you too will have the peace that passes all understanding that Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 4. The peace and the sense of safety that allows you to to sleep through the fiercest storms that life has to offer. And you'll be able to truly say with the author of this hymn that we just sang this morning, in the harvest feast or the fallow ground, my certain hope is in Jesus found. My lot, my cup, my cup, my portion sure, whatever comes, we shall endure. Why? Because we are in covenant with God. And God is faithful to His covenant promises. I pray that this would not just be something that you would sing. And that wouldn't even be something that you, that you even just know. I pray that you would live it and that you would know it by your experience. And so may God's covenant promises to all who believe in Christ and His sovereign ability to fulfill and uphold those promises, may that fill you with true peace and a true sense of safety in this tumultuous world. All for God's glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word, for the way that it instructs us, for the way that it guides us in thinking rightly about You. Lord, forgive us for our sin of having false expectations about You, should we ever have false expectations of You. We know that Your Word assures us that You are faithful to Your covenant promises, We know that You have never promised us an easy life, but what You have promised us is Your grace. The grace to make it through each day. The grace to make it through each circumstance that would try to break us. That would try to shake us. That would try to have us lose confidence in You. But we thank You that we rest securely in Your hands. We thank You for The fact that your word tells us that you are sovereign over all things and that you are using every circumstance that we face for good and so we pray lord that you would be with us in trials we pray that you would be with us in difficult circumstances that we too like david and jonathan may go in peace may live our lives with a sense of safety regardless of what our circumstances may be, because we are safe and secure in Christ by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.